Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. very special episode to share with you this week, perhaps the most inspiring one we've had on Legal Tea thus far. As you may know, our mission here at Legal Tea has not been only to inform our audiences about the diversity of career paths within the legal profession, but also to inspire them with the stories of the professionals who pursued these paths in the face of uncertainty, obstacles, and hardship. I think that today's guest is a perfect embodiment of those values, someone who has faced a remarkable series of obstacles and hardships in her own life, and not only achieved so much in spite of it, but is also using her skills and experience to help people who are in the same or similar position she was in. You see, this week we'll be talking about social welfare law with Alexa Thompson, a money advice trainee at Citizens Advice. In the episode, we discuss what social welfare law is, breaking down the stereotype behind people in debt, and the undercutting nature of the government's social welfare support schemes. A law convert and inspiring barrister, Alexa is a passionate advocate for social welfare. Being herself a care leaver and who used to be on benefits and homeless, we take time in the episode to discuss Alexa's personal journey and the barriers to social mobility within the profession, the importance of having a mindset not of overcoming hardship, but being resilient in spite of it, and finally, the importance of taking your time to develop your career rather than sprinting only to burn yourself out before it's even begun. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Alexa. Welcome to The Legal Tea. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good as well. Thank you. Now, we've got so much to dive into today, but before we jump in, why don't you take a moment to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, my name is Alexa. Um, I am a recent GDL law conversion graduate, and I'm currently studying uh, international human rights law as a master's. Um, I also work as a trainee debt advisor, um, and I also volunteer for the free representation unit, and I'll be starting the bar course in two weeks. Quite the loaded plate I see you got there. (laughs) No rest for the wicked, as they say. (laughs) So why don't you tell us a little bit about what is social welfare law? So social welfare law is kind of an umbrella term for several different areas of law, including welfare benefits, uh, housing with an emphasis on landlord and tenant, but also social housing, um, debt, which is what I work in, um, community care and mental health law, immigration and employment. You could also call it legal aid law, but I think because so many areas of law have been removed from the scope of legal aid, like death and employment, for instance. Social welfare law is kind of a broader term that captures all of those. That's amazing. And would you consider yourself, say, a generalist or a specialist? Because I know you you said in your introduction, kind of you you work particularly in kind of debt, but uh, just given that all the different areas that uh, social welfare law encompasses, I was wondering Mm. kind of how you consider your role or kind of the roles of other people within this field? Yeah. So my role, there are 
a few specialist components because the training is very much focused on gaining quite a deep understanding of the law on debt and different debt options for individuals. But you also have some more generalist elements because you need to be aware of how it overlaps with other areas. For instance, rent arrears is technically a debt but it also raises questions about, um, you know, how a landlord could seek possession. Um, so it engages that kind of area. So you do need to be aware of other areas. So I'd say I'd say it's a bit of both, really. That's interesting, especially how you use it with the example about kind of debt as uh, due to kind of rent arrears. Like mm-hmm. it's almost that, yes, you know, in, in debt, it's classified like this, but Obviously, you know, when you're dealing with a human being and in their case, you know, there are a lot of differentiating factors and a lot of factors that raise, you know, debt concerns, but also property concerns or leasing concerns. And so you need to have an appreciation of the whole picture. And that's why you need to kind of, you know, have that generalist mindset or appreciation. Exactly. Yeah. In your department, say in, in debt, what do you typically deal with? Um, on a day to day basis, we, handle primarily debt complaints there's a lot of overlapping issues where clients will also have issues with housing maybe they need some help in applying for um, leave to remain in the UK so we'll um, refer them to our immigration team Uh, the kinds of inquiries that we have is really all kinds of things from clients who just need one-off advice because they've got one debt and they've got enough money to set up some kind of payment plan to uh, more complex issues where really you'd be looking at a long-term insolvency option for them. As we were saying before, kind of each case is unique. So it almost makes you, I imagine, kind of keep on your toes. You always got to Go, go, got to keep on the lookout and, and stay alert because, you know, the next day another case is going to come in with a whole different set of facts or a different level of service and you have to adapt, I imagine. Yes. And you also kind of, you take on the role almost of an investigator because someone <laughs> might come to you and they don't know what debts they have. Um, somebody may have fraudulently taken out debts in their name, for instance, if they were in an abusive relationship or for any other reason, you know, with identity theft. and you also have to do a lot of kind of inquiries to find out if a debt has been sold to another company and you you really have to be on your toes and be alert to you know where the debts are what the status is because it's constantly changing so you're basically half lawyer half sherlock holmes uh, <laughs> half kind of you know consultant or advisor and sort of like translating their legal rights into kind of a way that they can also understand i imagine yeah and empowering them as well so that they kind of they know what options are available to them and they can make an informed choice because our role is really to kind of lay out all of the different options that a client may have and ensure that they understand what each of those would involve because some of them might have really long-term impacts like on your credit file or you know could even lead to a criminal record if you accidentally commit bankruptcy offense for instance so you really need to make sure that your client has a full understanding so that they can make an informed choice it sounds very hands-on, like you, you're very involved, especially in kind of your, your client's life. I mean, yeah. do, do you feel like a, a certain 
I don't know if emotional attachment is the right word, but it, 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 there's a, a lot at stake, essentially. Absolutely. And even because I'm a trainee, I also support caseworkers. So sometimes even if I'm not directly dealing with the client face to face, if I may be going through somebody's bank statements, even through that, you feel like you're learning a lot about a person. Um, so, yeah, I definitely feel like a strong emotional attachment to a lot of clients, especially ones who are really struggling. Now, I'm going to butt in and, and, and put my devil's advocate cap on, <laughs> um, because when it comes to debt, there's this kind of stereotype uh, that of, of apathy, particularly towards people in debt. You know, the, as the saying goes, kind of, if you can't afford it, then, then don't get a loan. Almost as a, you know, people are in debt because they made bad choices. And so therefore, it's, it's their fault. Mm-hmm. You've been in the field for quite a while now. You've met kind of people who are in debt. You've read their case files. You know kind of their story. Story. How accurate is this perception? Not really at all. <laughs> um, there, there are lots of reasons why somebody could end up in debt. And sometimes you're actually forced to go into debt. For instance, when you apply for universal credit, there's a six week delay before you receive your first payment. So you're faced with the option of either not paying for your ongoing liabilities, not paying for your rent, not paying for your internet, your fuel, your water, or you can draw down what's called an advance payment from your universal credit. And then going forward, you will have monthly deductions from your universal credit to repay that advance payment. So it's effectively an interest-free loan from the DWP. So that's classified as a debt and that that can't be helped by an individual. But there are also lots of clients who come to our services who haven't withdrawn from lines of credit. They they can't afford the regular costs of living. They can't afford council tax or fuel, water, any of their ongoing bills because the cost of living is just so expensive. And if you're disabled, you're more likely to be claiming benefits. You're more likely to be financially excluded. And a lot of our clients are vulnerable in those ways. So it's not it's not just a case of don't take out a loan if you can't afford it. Although there are clients who do withdraw unaffordable loans and, you know, you can't really blame somebody for wanting to resolve their financial situation because um, a lot of people take out loans to pay off their priority debts and they're trying to sort it out, but they just don't know how to. No, of course. I mean, obviously, much easier to criticize from the outside without actually having to having the knowledge of, of what it's like to, to make those decisions and be in those dire situations. And especially that, that kind of six week gap between applying for universal credit and actually coming through. That's that's insane. The fact that, you know, for those six weeks, people end up having to take loans, which then impacts the amount of universal credit they receive. And yeah. At the end of the day, they're getting less than what they applied for because of this delay. Exactly. And so now in the in the context of the pandemic, obviously has had a huge impact on employment, like people losing their jobs. But at the same time, we've seen a bit of a, of a cavalier attitude uh, from the government in terms of the furlough scheme and kind of all these different schemes to, to help. How have you found the area of social welfare law to have been impacted during the pandemic? Quite significantly because of the 
the reasons that you've kind of highlighted there that the government has taken some steps to try and mitigate the effects of the pandemic through the furlough scheme. Um, there was also the suspension of possession proceedings, which was a lifeline to some, but it also had the caveat that there are still some grounds that a landlord can seek possession of the property, for instance, if there's allegations of antisocial behaviour. So that was very useful for some clients, but for others, it didn't help so much. There was also the £20 uplift on universal credit that's due to come to an end that a lot of people are talking about at the moment. And specifically in debt, um, a few things were introduced. So there's this new scheme called Breathing Space that is designed to kind of do exactly what it says on the tin, give clients some breathing space to get some kind of debt solution in place through receiving debt advice And there's also been an increase in the financial limits for a debt relief order, which means that now clients who have larger amounts of debt or who have a larger monthly surplus in their income are eligible to apply for a debt relief order, which is very useful to a lot of clients. And do you feel that these these schemes and these changes, are they here to stay? Because I mean, obviously these came about in the context of this unprecedented pandemic and mm. now hopefully kind of you know we can leave the the, the pandemic in the real review mirror moving forward i mean yeah as, as 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 you talked about before kind of with the universal credit they're thinking about kind of you know removing the, the 20 20 pound uplift um with these other measures especially with the debt relief measure do do you see them staying or, or do you see them as just okay they were necessary for the pandemic and now we're going to remove them again As far as we know, there's no plans for those ones to be removed. Breathing space definitely seems like it's here to stay and the same for the increase in um, applying for a debt relief order. There are changes that that were very much needed um, because I don't think the limits for a debt relief order were reviewed as regularly as they need to be to kind of keep in line with inflation more broadly. Um, But I think they are here to stay, but a lot more needs to be done to kind of tackle the root issues for why people get into debt and things like, you know, maximizing somebody's income through having the £20 uplift on universal credit would make a huge impact on people's lives. And overall, kind of what impact has you have you seen kind of in the last couple of years um, with regards to government policy on the welfare state and kind of the social welfare that's available to the community? I think... Over time, we really are seeing the impact of government cuts to a lot of areas, um, especially in kind of in relation to legal aid. Um, Many areas of law are kind of being removed from the scope of legal aid. And during the pandemic, the government also reduced the legal aid available for people in immigration. So... I think social welfare law is one of those areas that is profoundly impacted by government policy decisions. And therefore, when these decisions are made, it has a real impact in directly giving advice and what clients are able to receive. And so then is the, the consequence of, of, of that is what the kind of clients don't come to you because they, they, they these services are less accessible or, you know, they don't have the money um, or they're just kind of not many um, legal aid services like yourself that can provide kind of this type of advice. It also puts an impact on third sector charities because it means that you can't go to a solicitor or 
maybe a charity that also provides legal aid services, they might be unable to help you. So um, it puts a further impact on the voluntary sector and you'll receive less kind of direct advice. A lot of people will definitely be turned away um, and it really does offload that responsibility to help people onto you know third sector advice agencies like law centers and the free representation unit citizens advice all of them helping out and personally kind of in 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 your role have you found kind of managing you know this unlimited demand for, for for services and for legal advice with obviously kind of the limited supply you have to give essentially you know at the end of the day, you're only so many. There are only so many hours in the day. And there's only so much kind of quality legal advice you can give before kind of obviously you start spreading yourself too thin. So how have you and, and your colleagues or kind of the organization as a whole, how have you guys been, been dealing with that? I think with great difficulty, <laughs> it means, you know, working longer hours, it's harder for you to switch off. Um, and I think, you know, for me personally, I, I do end up working longer. And I think as a sector, we try as hard as we can um, to see everybody because people go into this work because, you know, these are the kinds of people that they want to help. But I think the ultimate reality is that many people won't get the help that they need because the demand is so high and it's such an underfunded area. But I can imagine at least kind of, it must be such a relief when you do help uh, a client, because obviously, you know, you're, you're transforming their lives, essentially, even though it might be kind of a a peculiar kind of a a debt, um, a debt relief for them. It's, it's the world I can imagine, because you're dealing with people at their most vulnerable and they come to you for help and, and obviously kind of the services that you provide and being able to advise them but also empower them to make their own decisions they must think the world of you i can imagine well i mean we we are here to help them but it's it's always nice to know that you've really made a material difference in someone's life you know like some clients come in and they're you know crying they're very distressed they've you know buried their heads in the sand like debt is one area where we do get a lot of disengagement from clients because It's so overwhelming. And I think when you get letters from bailiffs, enforcement agents, creditors, they always use legal terms in a way that makes them feel small and um, scared. So I think that being able to deliver high quality debt advice to a person like that, it can be absolutely life changing for them, especially if you're considering an insolvency option. That's that's like a fresh start. Somebody can just move on with their life. And, you know, it is. Yeah, it can be really life changing. And do you have a, a, what's been your highlight moment of the job so far? I think my highlight moment on the job was um applying for a discretionary housing payment. So those are local funds that are offered by local councils and they are designed to help people with rental costs or their council tax. They're designed to be short term. And we had a client who had come to us for several years with the same ongoing issues and she received a discretionary housing payment several years ago, which meant that the council were quite reluctant to grant one again because it's they were kind of minded like, okay, so we gave her one before and it's not helped and the situation is still there. So why why should we give this money again? So 
I did kind of like a lot of advocacy on behalf of this client who, you know, has like complex disabilities, mobility issues, um, also buries her head in the sand like a lot of our clients. And um, it was ultimately successful. And the council granted her a discretionary housing payment for a shortfall in her rent, which was um, it prevents her from further accruing rent arrears, which keeps the wolf at the door in the sense that, you know, it reduces the level of arrears so that she can't get evicted from her property. So it was quite a big achievement, but um, it, it sometimes it can feel like you you can't just fix everything all in one go. No, of course. I mean, I can. If only we had a one that could, you know, solve yeah. solve the problems that people were, were dealing with. But um, I mean, as you were alluding to before, especially with debts, it's just such a complex web of legalese, documentations, processes. You know, you've got creditors, bailiffs, you've got the courts, you've got kind of payday loan companies. It's a headache just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> so, so the fact that you were able to provide that relief to that person at a particular moment in time, like, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's like the name of the scheme, breathing space. You, know, you yeah. gave them some space to breathe. So I can imagine they, they must have appreciated that very much. And, and how have you found this kind of, you know, putting these different hats on, like, you know, apart from just giving the straight legal advice uh, and doing the straight legal work, you know, investigating kind of the financial history of a, of a client also kind of, you know, finding a way as to how to communicate the legal advice so as to empower them to make their decisions and make sure they understand those decisions. Do you prefer it kind of that, that fact that you take on so many different elements in the process in a case or? I really enjoy all of those components quite a lot. I think sometimes it can be quite bureaucratic when you're dealing with creditors and you're trying to kind of find out who owns the loan and you contact one creditor and they're like, oh, okay, but we we actually sold it to these people. And then you contact them and it's the same issue. Um, so that's quite frustrating, but I really enjoy the kind of advocacy components when you're asking a creditor to kind of consider writing off a loan, which they don't have to do. And when you're dealing with clients and you're kind of trying to figure out what their issues are, taking a broad and holistic approach, you know, just really being on the lookout for little tells that there's something deeper going on or there's something that, you know, maybe they don't feel comfortable talking about but helping them to feel comfortable about it and letting them know that you're going to help them through um resolving these issues i i really enjoy it i, I can imagine it must be quite uh important as well to to change your approach in advocacy depending on who you're talking to so obviously the way you interact with a creditor is different than say a bailiff than it is a client yeah absolutely and you know, I, I really learned how to write very formal emails through this work. <laughs> um, Always you, important skill to have. Yes. Um, but, you know, even things like politely demanding things. Um, yeah, it's you, you do have to be quite varied in terms of how you communicate with people and you need to make your language accessible when you're talking to a client. Um, you need to really start from the beginning, but you also need to come out of the kind of legally educated mindset because a client doesn't care what the source of this law is. They don't care how it's changed over time. They don't care about the history of it, all the things that you were kind of taught. They care about what the outcome is for them, what it means in practical terms. So you really need to make sure that you actually have the answers to those questions and you understand that and what it means in practice. 
I can imagine that must serve like as a as a nice contrast, kind of the, the training work you're doing now with um, you know, your master's studies. So yeah. obviously, kind of, you know, when you're studying law in law school, especially at a master's level, it's very conceptual, theoretical, you know, you're having all these high-level abstract debates as to where the law should be going. But obviously, then on the trainee work, kind of you're actually seeing it on the ground in effect. And it's a totally, totally different story. Like one thing is how the statute is phrased and things like that, but it applies to people. Yeah. So, you know, people are humans and they, they don't have that kind of legalese or, you know, that time to debate about, you know, the, the evaluation of where the law should go, or what the policy behind that law. It's more about, okay, how do we implement this in practice? How do we get a resolution to satisfaction of all parties? How do I empower my clients? I can imagine that must be quite, quite a nice kind of two worlds to be living in at once. Yeah. And it means that I can kind of take respite from my work when it's, you know, very busy and I can just kind of sit and put myself kind of mentally on a cloud and just like think about all of these abstract things. But it's also been really useful. The things that I've learned in my master's, they've been directly helpful to my job because I did a module on disability law. And I found that that really helped in kind of like writing letters to creditors or the kind of approach that I take when I'm like advocating for clients who have like disabilities and are vulnerable. So they they are quite complimentary, but I don't have any free time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, at the end of the day, life is zero sum. You know, you can have the good <laughs> or a little bit of bad. Um, plus I feel like work is just an ever-expanding space. It just sucks out all the time in your life, regardless of whether you're doing one thing, two things, just finds a way to keep you busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you into social welfare law? And, and I feel like we've we've got quite a lot of um point along this journey to cover but first let's go off first off you know you introduced yourself recently graduated kind of gdl student now doing a master's working as well and you know doing the bptc but you you studied uh at undergrad theology and philosophy so what made you jump ship and, and join uh the legal profession i really wanted to do something that was more direct and practical that involved kind of helping people in a more real way because I, I finished my undergraduate degree and it was so interesting but I looked at the kinds of jobs that I would be able to help people in and it was very much kind of um, working for a charity but not doing the kind of role that I'm doing now like working in the admin team or HR just something that's a lot less kind of hands-on so I kind of wanted to go into law to do something more direct but also because in a very competitive job market, it seemed reliable and secure rather than just kind of continuing to think about really like abstract subjects where the only really direct career route from that is to become an academic, go into the church or end up teaching it. And none of those really were what I wanted to do. And how did you find that kind of conversion these are a lot of people kind of typically they do the GDL and then straight after they just kind of, you know, start the, they get a training contract to the LPC and start a firm. But for you, it's, it's, you know, you're taking the, the road less traveled kind of GDL, then you're doing a master's mm. and now you're kind of looking for the BPTC. So how was that process? Cause I've, I've heard the GDL is very much like a nine month 
crash course, you know, they try and instill you as much information as possible so that you absorb it like a sponge. And so how have you found it then going from like something as, you know, intensive and, you know, memorization rigorous as the GDL to then something like the master's, which is it's rigorous on its own terms, but in a, in a different way, I imagine. Yeah. Like I, I ended up doing the master's precisely because the GDL is very much for crash course and coming from my very kind of thinky undergraduate degree I I was sat being taught all of this law that I had to kind of absorb memorize and then you know apply in an exam context and I didn't really have as much room to criticize the law as I wanted and it was very much presented as a matter of fact and because of my kind of academic background, I found that quite oppressive. Um, so I wanted to study a master's that was very much like, let's think about the law and why it is the way it is. And I, I found that really invaluable. It's very different to the kind of approach of the GDL, but I found that ultimately the kind of the emphasis on practice in the in the GDL has helped me um in my approach to my masters and then subsequently through my work um and I do actually remember a surprising amount from the GDL so as much as I hated it at the time and was desperate for for it to be over it was actually useful yeah <laughs> and then what made you want to now pursue kind of the the, the barrister route I mean because it sounds at least Right now, that the work that you do at, at your organization as a, as, a, as a trainee, the, the natural path would be then become a solicitor, you know, getting a training contract. So what, what's making you veer towards becoming a barrister? I think my, my personal route in my job, I could, you know, progress and become an advisor and, and very much stay in this job. And our organization, they do offer, you know, some training contracts and we do have trainee solicitors. The reason why I gravitate towards the the bar is really because I want my default mode to be arguing rather than necessarily advising. And the things that I enjoy the most in my job are when I'm arguing for a client. And when I've when I've worked in solicitors firms before, you're so busy and it's really rewarding being able to help people in the way that you're doing it so concrete as well. Um, but I found that you don't really get to grapple with the legal argument as much as I would like. So that's that's really why I want to go to the bar. Now going on to the social welfare, kind of why specifically that area of law, what, what made you choose social welfare law? I think I've always been committed to wanting to help the people in our society who are really at the bottom, who have had doors shut and just have nobody there to advocate for them. I think it's also informed by my personal experiences because I am a care leaver. I've been on benefits. I've been homeless. I've I've been through like a lot of things and I feel sometimes like I relate more to a client than I do my colleagues. And I really want to use the skills that I have to kind of 
give back to them because I have so much kind of empathy for their position. I'm not, I'm not going to judge them, but I've been able to develop all of these skills. And I really just want to use that to empower them, to like lift them out of these situations and also to advocate for structural change as well, to prevent people from continually being at the bottom and to improve social mobility. And your story itself is is empowering, and I, I can imagine empowering to so many others. And on kind of social mobility, you know, social mobility not only is just kind of a community wide thing, but also in the legal profession. I mean, what was your experience like doing a law degree as a student from a low income background? And from my understanding, kind of that period where you were homeless was, you know, during your law degree. Sorry, of, of your undergraduate degree. Yeah, it was um it was really difficult to be honest there's no sugar coating it. Um, so you you need to know where the sources of help are and for me it was my university access uh, sorry hardship fund and they were able to help me have enough money to pay for rent and a deposit on my new property. So it was really hard. Um there's there's no way of getting around that really. I think that in law, there is a lot of positive steps that have been taken to try and encourage social mobility. But I think that the barriers are that it's often before people reach the point of applying for scholarships, applying to do uh, postgraduate courses, that people are deterred from going into law and they are prevented. And it's also being able to pitch your experiences in a really middle class way. Um, I sound very middle class. I'm able to give just enough information that I can present this as a story of overcoming adversity rather than the truth, which is that it's an ongoing experience. You don't leave care and then you become an adult and everything in your life is fine. Like five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line, you're still going to be experiencing the impact of that. You might have trauma, you might need therapy, you might have ongoing issues with your family that are going to be with you for your whole life. Um, So I think that some of the ways that needs to be improved with law is kind of taking the focus off of overcoming and actually just looking at how strong and resilient that person is and how strong and resilient they continue to be because it's an ongoing, ongoing struggle for them. I really liked how you kind of phrased it. Yeah. This kind of as a process, not as a, as an outcome. Like it's not something you say, I beat it, you know, I I kicked it. It's done. Like I'm winning. (laughs) Happy ending, happily ever after. No, like this is something which, you know, is uh, I can imagine is something that you kind of continue on a day to day because the truth is whether you like it or not, it's, it, it forms a part of, of your life and, and yeah. kind of has led you to this decision, you know, both unfortunately, but also, you know, as you were saying, it has allowed you to connect with the clients that you serve on a level which kind of your colleagues might not be able to. I can imagine as well, kind of being a client in that situation and knowing that the person that's advising you or managing your case has been through the exact same um, issue, maybe not the the exact same, but knows what it's like to be in that situation of despair. Um, I can imagine it means the world to them, you know, that they must feel kind of quite secure in your hands that, you know, as someone who knows what that's like, that they are going to take care of, that you're going to take care of their case. And there's no judgment as well yeah 
And I was going to say that this is also why I find your decision to the BPTC kind of even, you know, more kind of admirable because obviously the BP, that funding the BPTC is notoriously more difficult than getting kind of the LPC. I mean, you see stories, um, I think it was kind of a year ago or a couple of years ago where people were, were doing crowdfunds just mm. to, to pay for the BPTC because they couldn't get scholarships. I mean, there are scholarships. They don't all go to 100%, sometimes 25%, sometimes 50%. And it's just a whole other application process. So yeah. it's, it's, it's surprised the amount of kind of financial barriers, like you were saying, that sometimes just kind of deter people from applying altogether. Yeah. And, you know, even before you get to the point of applying for scholarships, you've got £150 fee to sit the BCAT. And if you fail that, you have to pay that all over again. There's no funding available for that. Um you know, like a £900 fee to register on your course, the cost of being called to the bar, the cost of a wig and gown, all of that, you are so reliant on the benevolence of an external body to invest in you. And it's really hard. And that's why I think if you're from a low income background, you have to get the scholarships. I mean, I think I was very fortunate because I did get the scholarships, but I also had a lot of people who helped me along the way. I had people who did mock interviews with me for the GDL and the bar course scholarships. And I spent a lot of my free time reading constantly the questions (laughs) that you'll get asked. And it's very difficult. And a lot of it is luck, but you need other people who are able to help you out. And I try to help as many people as I can in navigating these systems because they're not easy. They're quite intimidating. <laughs> I can imagine. It's a, just a, a whole a whole postgraduate course of its own making. Yes. <laughs> and so may I ask, what kept you going with kind of, you know, converting into law, doing the GDL, doing a master's, working part-time, now kind of, kicking on to do the BBTC, like what's kept you going in, in the face of, of all these obstacles that, that you find yet yeah, you've overcome, but you're still dealing with, with more kind of headed your way, you know, what keeps you going? Um, I think I have a lot of support from my partner, especially, um, but also from people in the profession, um, especially people at Garden Court North who have continued to support me and help me. Um, And so I think that kind of sustains me when I am really struggling to carry on with all of the different demands that I have. And then also the focus on the end goal, like falling asleep, thinking about, you know, when I'm called to the bar and when I'm in practice, which is so exciting. I I can't wait to be at that point where I'm actually in practice. So being ambitious thinking about the end goal, but making sure that you have a really strong support network, I think. And now, you know, with um, the area of social welfare law, what do you think are the skills necessary to, to work in this area? Um, aside from all of the necessary baseline skills, like you need to be, you know, capable of thinking critically you need to be um you know intellectually smart all of those baseline skills that everybody listening to this podcast will have um you need to be creative because there's not always going to be an easy solution there might not even be a precedent for what you're trying to do you need to be sympathetic and empathetic because 
you're not always going to have a really easy client who's so grateful for all of your help. You know, sometimes people are difficult and you need to be like really mindful of where they're coming from. You need to have an empathetic mindset because it's not just about having the skills to kind of act professionally in those situations. You need to genuinely look at this person with compassion and kindness. Um, yeah. So I think, I think creativity and empathy are key for this area. In your experience, what's been the best way um, to develop these skills? You alluded to beforehand, obviously, you had a great support system and mm. you had kind of colleagues within the profession as well, that kind of obviously supported you on your journey. I'm just saying in the context for kind of law students and law graduates uh, now, especially with the pandemic where opportunities have been cut, um, it's more difficult to really get engaged in a lot of extracurriculars. What do you find are the best way to develop these skills, especially with kind of, you know, building empathy and communication? I think that one is a mindset that you can practice in your day-to-day life, for sure. Um, With regards to building experience, charities like Citizens Advice always looking for volunteers. There are virtual opportunities despite the pandemic. There are, you know, virtual mini pupillages. Bridging the Bar has brought out two internships with the UK Supreme Court and the Law Commission. Um, there's there's always something going on. And I found personally that I've been able to actually get involved with more experiences because I'm based outside of London. And with the drive for everything being online, it's actually been more accessible. Um, so just kind of being alert to things and build your LinkedIn network because people will be sharing things left, right and centre. Um, so there, there are things you just need to look for them. Um, you might have to look quite hard, but um, yeah. And talking about that, obviously kind of, you know, a reflection that sometimes it, it, it takes time. These things and developing your career takes time. Yeah. You know, one of the things that law students, I feel, are, are quite pressured by in comparison to, to, to other subjects is already from, you know, your first year, you're already bombarded with yeah, open days, VAC schemes, training contracts. Like it's, you've barely opened a legal textbook and you're already expected to have a five-year plan yeah. um, <laughs> as, to a career in an industry which you, bar- you barely know anything about. Um, and so I, that, that's why I find kind of, you know, stories like yours where, you know, it wasn't say, bam, bam, bam. It, was, it wasn't necessarily kind of linear, but it took time. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to kind of get your, get your opinion on that, about kind of, you know, giving yourself some space, taking the time and, and knowing that the road can be bumpy and will be bumpy. Exactly. And I'm so grateful that I didn't do law at undergraduate level because I would have had all of those pressures and during that time I would have been homeless and I wouldn't have been able to have got like stellar grades throughout my entire law degree so I would have left feeling like a failure and like I I can't have a career in law so um and I'm sure that's not the case that's just how I would have felt so I think really be true to yourself know where you want to go take a thorough systematized approach and try not to do everything at once because when I did my GDL scholarship interview, the panel told me at the end, obviously I'd come from a non-law background, so I didn't have, you know, reams of experience. I didn't have many pupillages, marshalling, you know, I had like one or two experiences in total. And the panel told me, you need to build your experience. So over the next like year and a half, I tried to do 
everything. And um, I was doing like at least one moot a month. I was volunteering for one or two organizations at the same time. I was trying to do my course, which was the GDL. And I did so much and I'm absolutely burnt out now. But when I did the bar course scholarship interview, they said, you've got your experience is great. I didn't need to do it all in such a short space of time, but I felt the pressure to, and you really feel the consequences of that when you've done so much for such a long time. And I think the risk when you're going into a profession like law, where there are so many obstacles and it's so competitive, is that you try to build your CV so that you look like the strongest candidate. And then when you start practice, you're actually burnt out because the first day of practice is actually the first day of your career. It's not like the end of you know, your process where you're trying to get into it is actually the start of something new and you need to not be exhausted for it. So um, take time and, you know, take breaks. It's okay to get eight hours sleep, you know, just it's, yeah, like really don't be afraid to take your time. I I wish I'd done that. (laughs) It's almost like, you know, finish sprinting at the end of a 400 meter relay only to find out you're starting it's actually the start of the iron man <laughs> that's, the, that's that's the way i like to put it and I, I think you put it beautifully well it's that you know this is the start of your career like it's mm. not okay i get here i get the training contractor i get the offer and then yeah i can relax everything's happy it'll be a day to day no it's that's the start of it and there, there's no point in doing you know 250% effort if at the end you're just going to start at work and only be able at 33% capacity because you had burnt out for the last God knows how long you've been working yourself to death. Um, so I, I, really, I really like how you kind of, you know, contextualize it within the journey. This is your start of your career and your career will be long and prosperous. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> We've talked a lot on, you know, uh, motivation stories, you know, obviously the context behind social welfare law, what social welfare law is. Now, I usually like to end these interviews on a bit of a more lighthearted note. And I want to actually ask you, I mean, you obviously have an amazing story, but is there any favorite dramatized legal character on TV or, or from movies that, that you particularly liked? This is such a good question. Um, so I think the kind of the representation of like corporate law firms in um angel the buffy the vampire slayer spin-off <laughs> series um so wolfram and hart are presented as like the baddies but i think looking at their kind of presentation of like the totality of like corporate law firm culture which some academics have referred to as like a total institution in in that kind of setting it's like your contract with them doesn't end when you die because like some of the lawyers there die and they're still working for Wolfram and Hart so um yeah I found that like quite an amusing but also really enjoyable and the show is brilliant as well um and they also like present the moral ambiguity of being a lawyer at times as well so I think that's probably my favorite representation Oh, fantastic. I haven't seen it. So do I need, to see, do I need to see Buffy the Vampire Slayer before I can see the spin-off? Or? 
I think it's best to actually watch them simultaneously and watch them in <laughs> chronological order. And something that happens in Buffy will be picked off an angel. It's amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I'm running out of shows to watch on Netflix, so I'll definitely be picking this up as my next watch. <laughs> Anyways, Alexa, thank you so much. If any of our audiences have any follow-up questions from this interview, can they reach out to you? And if so, how? Um, contact me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Alexa Thompson. They should be able to find me that way. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much once again, Alexa. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoy learning about social welfare law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Alexa. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of theme song. Enjoying our exquisite brew? Have a knack for social media marketing and outreach? And are an avid tea drinker? Well, Legal Tea is hiring. We want you to become the marketer for our podcast. If this sounds like you, or if you're interested to learn more, send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk, or send us a DM on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk. Till next time.